I've simply got to where I'm at today through process of elimination, but backwards. <laughs> I've, I've failed so miserably at so many different things. The last thing I tried was the first thing that worked, which was admitting complete defeat, right? Who wants to admit defeat in life? Nobody. And so the moment I admitted that complete defeat was the exact second I secured the ultimate victory. Welcome to A Better Life with Brandon Turner. That is me, where world-class guests share their wisdom on building a better life. Join me as we explore the habits, the actions, and the beliefs that have guided their journey with the aim of helping you apply those lessons to your own. Brandon Novak, welcome to the Sea Shed, man. How you doing? I'm pretty stoked to be here. Good, man. All the way from uh, where in the world were you at? Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Yeah. Man. All the way for, to Maui for the podcast. Yeah. I've always looked for an excuse to come here. Yeah. yeah. It's like, hey, I want to come to paradise and hang out and talk to cool people and I, Brandon Turner. I, and you know, ironically, <laughs> you, uh, you share the same first and last name as one of my closest the skateboarder yeah, friends, that dude, Brandon Turner. That good dude has my name. I That's know. That's my guy. Yeah. You know what's really funny? So when my guy was like, you, yeah. you want to do Brandon Turner's sure. podcast? I'm like, Brandon Turner doesn't have a podcast. <laughs> and he's like, and I'm like, so then. That's funny. And you're also not black. I am he's not black. black. Yeah. You so know, there's a few differences. And so you're not a pro skater, I don't think. I have skateboarded a couple times. So okay. I'm pretty much pro. Yeah, why would you not be? In my mind, you're pro. You live in Maui. Yeah, why yeah. wouldn't you be pro? In college, I had a dorm here and I had the like the lunch place here. And in the middle, it just went downhill a little bit and up. So yeah. I would skateboard from, I learned to skateboard from my dorm to the cafeteria and back. That was my whole skateboarding career. Enough, Thumbed if up. you ask me. <laughs> I think it's from early enough. on. You you kind of got the concept of working smarter, not harder. There we go. Yeah, right? and I got food out of it, so that worked really well. So, yeah. dude. All right. So I know you. First of all, I know you as a former TV celebrity star. I know you and are an author. Uh, you were on shows like Jackass and Viva La Bam. Were you on that? Yeah. 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 You, yeah so totally. like, crazy. Uh, I know you are today though. Have a whole different approach, and I want to get to that today, or a different a different life today than you did maybe twenty years ago. So. But why don't you take us back? Who were you before MTV and uh, being a celebrity? Dude, I was a kid that came from a, a rather diverse family life and background, meaning I had the best of both worlds. My mother was a uh, nuclear physicist. No way. Who was on the board of Mercy Hospital. And she recently retired after 53 years of gainful employment. Second longest employer in Mercy Hospital history. Rather prominent woman within that organization. My brother is an attorney in the White House who practices pensions and benefits. Mm. But my father, he never held a job a day in his life. And he taught me one thing, if and when I go to prison, how to conduct myself. And he ran with the Hells Angels. How did they meet? Just (laughs) love and just weird things that the heart does that makes you interested in things that normally you wouldn't be interested in. Mm. And they met at a diner. It was during that era when drive-ins and diners were like the thing. Yeah. Everybody loved my father, except for his family, mm. right? Like he had the gift to gab and, and he'd walk in the bar and everyone loved when Rome came. Rome bought the whole bar shots and he kept the party going. Mm. And he ultimately acquired the liking of crack cocaine and, and his body had shut down and he passed away. So from a very young age, like I recognized the psychic change that takes place upon an individual once they ingest a drink or a drug, yeah. right? Like I could see, and, and as a matter of fact, I, I kind of live my life proving a point and excelling at everything that I, I did 
to make it a point. I'd never become him, Yeah, you know? And then I got a skateboard. I got a skateboard at the age of seven. And my mother, she put me to bed that night. I was given this skateboard at the skate park. And she said, what would you like me to do with the skateboard, Brandon? I said, I want it in bed with me. And she said, why? I said, because if I die, I want it to go with me, mm. right? Like uh, it was truly God's given talent. Like, you might be the best ping pong player in the world, but God might not see fit to put a paddle in your hand. Mm. I had no desire or wants to skateboard. It literally just kind of divinely inconvenienced me by way of my sister living in Ocean City, Maryland at the time. And looking back, she took me to the skate park to visit some guy who was like more her age. And the guy was a pro skater and he clearly had it for my sister. So he decided to give me a skateboard, probably just to help his <laughs> efforts to get lucky with her. Yep. And I get this skateboard and I'm like, this is it. Like, and the moment that board touched my hand, I knew I was going to be a professional skateboarder. There was no reason for like a plan B, a trait or an option. And I became it. And that kind of consumed my life before addiction did. And I always say that skateboarding did for me at a very young age, what drugs and alcohol did for me at a later age. Meaning that like, you give me a skateboard at the age of seven, you put me in the room with the world's prettiest models. I'll not only believe that they've been waiting for me, but that they're dying to marry me, mm. right? And and then drugs and alcohol would produce that same delusional narrative later on down the road. I guess to sum up kind of what it looked like before the end of that road is I was genetically predisposed. My father was an addict, his father was an addict, and my upbringing consisted of my mother got that job at Mercy Hospital at the age of 15, drawing blood for $5 a pop. She was a phlebotomist. Mm. And she literally worked her way up the ladder to become that nuclear physicist on the board of Mercy Hospital. So in doing so, she wasn't home. like barely ever at all. So my father would take me to the strip joint with him when he would conduct the business in the back and, and the pretty dancing girls would, would sit me at the bar and pour shots of ginger ale and Coca-Cola. And I, you know, this is like six, eight, seven, and I'm doing the shots. The girls would yeah. give me that, you know, so, so funny. Yeah. yeah. There's that positive reinforcement. Totally. So I was kind of conditioned in that manner, not to like place blame on anybody. Yeah. Because now what I know and having a very clear perspective of what my situation looked like growing up is I came from a very loving family that did the best that they could with what they had. Mm. You know, my father wasn't armed with the facts to understand what he was up against with his addiction, hence his death. He was just a sick man, Yeah, you know? Now, obviously you understand a lot more about addiction and we'll get into that part of the story. You mentioned genetically predisposed to addiction. How much is, in your understanding, is genetic versus, I don't know, nurture nature, I guess. How much blame can we lay on each side of those? I'd say all I can really do is give you my experience sure. and my narrative because it's mine and, and it'd be very wrong for me to pretend to have this understanding of the reality and severity of alcoholism and addiction because everyone is looking for the answer. Yeah. And if we had the answer, we'd bottle it up, we'd sell it, we'd be a billionaire a billion times over. Yeah. So in this thing called harm reduction, if you will, because that's where we're at, and recovery, there's no margin for error, yet it's impossible to do perfect. Yeah. So what I can tell you is that individuals that become addicts or alcoholics somewhere along the line often are suffering with some kind of underlying trauma that was just never exposed mm. until it kind of becomes too late. And it's such an individualized deal it's not a one size fits all you know read this instruction manual you get this result and what worked for me very well may not work for you or and that's why i think the statistics the numbers the cold hard facts the data the analytics of what recovery versus addiction looks like it seems that we're fighting this unwinning battle and it's yeah. very frustrating 
Yeah, I would love to know. I mean, what do you, none of us, like you said, if we all had the answer, we'd all be, we'd be totally. billionaires, right? Yeah. But when you look at some cities and they, some people say, hey, the answer needs to be decriminalize everything, mm-hmm. provide just as much help as we can, take a much more, I don't know, soft approach, but maybe that's the best way of saying that. And other ones are like, no, war on drugs, crack down, harder penalties. Where do you fall on that? What do you think? I mean, how do we help Portland, Oregon? Like, how yeah, do you yeah. help, the, you know, totally. LA? Well, here's the notion that I'm of. I've become, and this sounds crazy to say, but basically I'm an employee of the DEA. The DEA now pays me. I'm the keynote speaker of these DEA organization events that they throw all throughout the nation. The DEA in New York is different than the DEA in Chicago. They're all under the same umbrella, but they just kind of are wired a little bit differently. But they have these events called the 360 degree opioid summit. So they've brought me in to to speak on the topic because they realize and recognize that that they can no longer arrest their way out of this. So I was just at one of the events, Cincinnati last week, and I was talking to two really high up individuals and they said they were part of interviewing Pablo Escobar when they had gotten him. And they said, Pablo, how do we stop this? How do we stop the influx of drugs that, that cartels are bringing in? And he said, there's no more demand, there's no more supply. Mm. And it's literally that simple. I literally spent the majority of my life, every waking moment of every day, trying to consume and intravenously shoot as much heroin that I could get my hands on that day. So just by me sobering up, right? That's freed up a lot of the demand. So if you multiply me by like 10,000 of me, and that is happening, right? Like one person helped me, that's two, two help four, four help eight, eight help 16. Before you know it, the narrative's changing and Mm. creating a much more desired outcome. Is it true that affluent Americans are the biggest consumer of cocaine and opiates? I don't know. I don't know. What I do know, though, is cocaine is making a very big comeback stating the DEA. Right now, they're like really cracking down and they're seeing tons of cocaine again. Interesting. So that's like a full circle moment. Do you think it's the, is it the responsibility of recovering addicts to help other addicts? Is that, would you consider that the responsibility of an addict? I personally consider it my duty, my job. I think it's unfair for me to place unrealistic expectations on on people that can't live up to what I believe they're capable of. Mm. Because again, doing a lot of work on myself in recovery and sobriety and in the 12 step fellowship that I belong to, we have this book and we go through the 12 steps and it gives us a proper understanding of, of what we suffer with and what we can do to combat against it. And the number one offender to an alcoholic is a resentment. And a resentment is its the number one offender that will lead us back to a drink. And, and to drink is to die. So what I've learned throughout my journey is that I will not place unrealistic expectations on, on you, him, her, it, because it's not a matter of if you'll let me down, but when you'll let me down. Mm-hmm. You will, everyone, I let me down. No one can live up to my standards. And knowing that, placing this expectation on you, I've just now set myself up for an unfulfilled resentment, yeah. which knowing what I suffer with and armed with the facts leads me to be resentful and a resentful, resentment is a number one offender, will take me back. So what I can control in this life, and it's, it's, I didn't get it until I got it. What I am absolutely 100% in control of is me, my thinking, my attitude, and my behavior. I can't control how you act, but I can control how I react to your mm. actions. In turn, making my life a lot lighter and easier to navigate through. 
That's beautiful, man. I want to get a little bit more into that stuff too. But first, let's go back to your story a little bit. Yeah. And in fact, actually, before we get to your story, uh, you know, one thing on the show that we do is uh, kind of kind of unique is that 100% of the ad revenue, so every piece of ad money that comes in from the show, we, we donate to a charitable cause of the guest choosing. So for this episode, uh, where would you like all the money sent to? What's a nonprofit that you believe in? Or Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, you want us to support. Yeah. So the mission behind my statement, the why behind my cause is I refuse to let finances be a deterrent as to why someone can't continue on with sobriety upon completing an inpatient program, knowing that generally we end up there by way of burning every bridge known to man, Yeah. right? Um, so so I own six properties to be exact with 65 beds in it. And my, my mission is to um, provide a scholarship and a bed for any man in need of one, provided they're willing to, to buy into how we've created yeah. and do that. So that would be through King's Crusade. Okay. But the houses are called Novak's house. All right, man. I appreciate that. That's, well, that's wow, yeah. that's that's really cool. Yeah. Thanks, man. Well, let's roll the ad. Hey, do you ever feel like the universe conspires against you every time you try to get a loan for your rental properties or flips? I mean, application errors, endless paperwork, those ever elusive documents. Look, we've all been there. It drives me nuts. And that's what led me to create Better Life Real Estate Funding, or Better Life Ref for short. It's built specifically for real estate investors because we have quirky loan needs. So whether it's a refinance of a burr, a house hack purchase, a fix and flip hard money loan, or something totally else, we've got you covered. So drop the hassle and let's chat. Visit betterliferef.com today. That's betterliferef, betterliferef.com. All right. All right, dude, let's go back to your story a little bit and mm -hmm. get into... How did you go from, hey, I just got a skateboard to now I'm one of the best skateboarders in the world? Like, how did that transition uh, to excellence come? Like, how much work did it put into there? And where did that come from, that level of dedication? You know, it's... So everything that we talk about and discuss today is nothing that I knew until I knew it. Yeah. And my life is all in retrospect and live forward and learn backwards. So what I know today, I had no clue then, but skateboarding kind of has allowed me to become this man that I am today that some might view as rather successful. And it's simply because for skateboarders, failure is not an option and no is unacceptable, mm -hmm. right? Like we will try a trick for days, weeks, months, sometimes years, and then we get it and we're just on to the next. And that's literally something that was ingrained in my mind and that followed me into finding sobriety. But at a young age, I was on that skateboard and, and some people started to recognize and see in me what I clearly didn't see in myself. And one of those individuals was a pro skater by the name of Bucky Lasik. Mm. And he was also from Baltimore and, and he kind of took me under his wing and, and he, he was my mentor. And he would take me to Tony Hawk's house with him every summer oh, wow. and we'd skate his mini ramps and vert ramps and then he in turn got me sponsored by Pal Peralta and really introduced me to the right people that had the ability to open up every door I was knocking on. Yeah, what is the importance of a mentor like that at such a young age? I mean, for me now, show me who you walk with and I tell you who you are. And I didn't know that as a kid, but literally, I, I surround myself with people today that I would walk with, that I can trust, that I can believe in, that truly have my best interest at heart. That's you know, how I found my sobriety and have achieved what I've achieved today. And as a kid, 
I just was blinded by genuine love. I think when people are blinded by love and have this genuine sincerity of just being a good human, you'll find your tribe. Mm. And I found my tribe. And what I didn't know then that, again, that I know now, and I hate to keep saying that, is, is that skateboarding was raising me, it was saving me, it was sparing me of a lot of traumatic events that were taking place at home between my biker father and my mother that no one should have to endure. That did a lot for me. As a matter of fact, it did so much for me that when drugs came into play and I, and I gave away what I loved the most in this world, which was skateboarding, to my heroin addiction, every time I was on the street, I was in a treatment center and I'd see a skateboarder pass me, I would literally like run the other way. Mm. It was like that love that got away that I had um, taken for granted. And that, that hurt me for a lot of years. Like I wasn't able to come to terms with that. So when you, let me, let me actually, I'll go build to that question. What was the first drug? Do you remember when you first got into it? Do you remember being offered something? Did it start soft? And, uh... Yeah, it, it's such the, the cliche answer, but it was alcohol okay. at first. And then it progressed to me stealing my father's herb because he sold a lot of weed. Okay, He was a big weed dealer. So I'd steal his weed and then I'd, I'd steal the screen out of the little sink and make these little makeshift pipes and and do that. But see, at a really young age, I was already, right? Like I was traveling the world with the Bones Brigade, hanging out at Tony Hawk's house in the summer, doing these demos all over the nation. So it looked like I, there was a method to my madness. No one was concerned with what I was doing. There was no accountability to my lifestyle. Yeah. I, I didn't have a, a nine to five boss to show up to and be presentable for. My check-in with my manager looked like me going to the 7-Eleven at the corner and pumping in like $3 and quarters to call the Santa Barbara warehouse where the Powell warehouse was and talk to Todd Hastings and tell him about these new tricks that I'm learning. Like that's me yeah. checking in with my ball. I didn't have to be in when the lights came on and and the youngest person I hung with while I was, you know, eight, nine, 10, up to 16 was like 17 years old. Yeah. You know, like it was older guys that were really established in the skateboarding world. So they were doing things and my mother like liked that she could focus on work and becoming successful to get us away from my father. It did good for me in every every aspect. Is weed a gateway drug? Like, would you say that today to people? So today I own a treatment center, okay. uh, a rehab, a drug and alcohol treatment center. And I have several clients in my facility that are there strictly for herb. Yeah. So my question to people, because it's, it's, a, it's legal, yeah. right? Like it's, anyone can get it. It's a lot of states you don't even need to, to have the card. But my question to people is more so at that younger age before they start to experiment is, is what is it within you that feels like you need to ingest a drink mm -hmm. or a drug to change your internal feelings about your external situation? Mm -hmm. Like, let's get there. And then we don't have to do this whole like, please don't follow my footsteps kind of deal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. All growing up, you know, I was raised in a very, you know, religious household. And so, I mean, alcohol was, was bad. Weed was bad. Everything was bad. And I remember finding out my friends when I was in high school, I randomly went to a, like a, a party, like we were just hanging out and, and then I left and I came back and I like was going to scare everyone. Cause I like forgot something there. I had forgot my keys or something like that. So I come back in and they were all just smoking weed. And I was so shocked 
in that situation because I was so like sheltered. Sheltered, yeah. yeah. So sheltered. I just remember my whole worldview just like crushed. And I was yeah. like, all my friends are heathens that are like destroying their lives. Now, most of them have been just fine and had, have great lives, but it took me a long time to get over that like anger against weed to where I was okay with it. And then now like I, I have a lot of friends who who went from weed into heroin and went mm-hmm. to weed. So now I'm almost back to like, I don't I don't know if I like weed at all. I don't totally. think I want to like allow that at all. Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm just curious of how like addicts think of that. So. Throughout my journey now, and I always talk about it today, sobriety has given me everything that drugs and alcohol ever promised me. Mm. And I've remained sober long enough that the scales of justice have finally equaled out to where I've been blessed with this amazing life that the thought of smoking some herb or slicing a glass of wine would be absolutely insane. Yeah, I didn't think like that for a long time, but I had to make it through those like trying tough times of early sobriety. Yeah, But now that I see it, so what I do is try to share my message, right? Because if you, you know, I come in and I say, hey, my name is Brandon, I'm an addict, I'm an alcoholic. All that means is that I'm defiant by nature. I hate authority and I refuse to conform mm. because I possess this job. And, and this job places me in a lot of positions I don't like to be in and it, it allows me to feel a lot of feelings I don't like to feel and that job consists of knowing everything, right? So when a very intelligent, genuine person suggests to me what I should do to ultimately save my life, I suggest why you should F off mm. because I know. Yeah. So understanding that that's the demographic, the wheelhouse within what I'm working up against, it's all a sleight of hand card trick because we all want the same result. It's just a deliverance. How am I giving it to you? So what I do is I approach it through my story and and my social media platforms and give it to you in a form of attraction rather than promotion. So if you can want what I have so bad that you're willing to do whatever it takes to get there, right? Then the terms of your contract will forever change because it's become your idea. Right, so yeah. I, I don't walk around like slamming recovery or sobriety. I'm like, if going to the pub and, and slicing off a bottle of wine gives you that life that you're looking for that allows you to wake up out of bed with like this lust for the day, I'll drive you to the pub. Who am I to say, yeah. right, what the right way of going about life is? I've simply got to where I'm at today through process of elimination, but backwards. <laughs> I've, I've failed so miserably at so many different things. The last thing I tried was the first thing that worked, which was admitting complete defeat, right? Who wants to admit defeat in life? Nobody. And so the moment I admitted that complete defeat was the exact second I secured the ultimate victory. But I was incapable of seeing that because um, I was just so consumed by the mess that I, I couldn't see that message for, yeah. for years. And then looking back again, all in retrospect, I look back and for the better part of 18 years, I just simply rearranged the furniture on the Titanic. <laughs> My ship sank every time. And then finally, cause I'd always, you know, people be like, I mean, my best friend, one of my best friends, Bam from Jackass, yeah, yeah. you know, he supported me in my journey a lot of the way. And, and I went through my, God willing, my last treatment center, 13. And he said, what was it about number 13? Yeah. Like, why not 12, 11, 10? Yeah, I was gonna ask the same question. And I'm no fool by any means, right? As a matter of fact, no addict or alcoholic ends up an addict or an alcoholic because they took the short bus to school. Mm. Quite the contrary, actually. We end up here because we're too smart for own goddamn good. Mm. And then we end up in a seat in a facility that has the ability to save our life. And I outthink myself right out of it, right? So he said, what, why 13? Did you have like a meeting with God or something? And I did. And I didn't say that to him because he wasn't in a place to like be able to process that. Yeah. 
But looking back, not one of those attempts were failures. Whether I, I got loaded in the facility, whether I left early, whether none of those were failures because what was happening is these seeds were being planted. And then one day, a lot of things aligned, age, pain, maturity, looking at my track record, I could no longer deny or justify the severity of my alcoholism. The handwriting was on the wall and it was mine, right? Like I couldn't blame it on the, the second ex-fiance because I tried that with the first one. <laughs> like like uh, it, was, it wasn't the judge's fault because his wife didn't want to kick any out and he was mad and had to sleep on the sofa. It wasn't the parole officer's fault because the piss test was faulty. It's like, come on. Yeah. And I realized that the common denominator of my problems were me. Mm. You know, I don't know how I got into that whole tangent. No, dude, I love it. <laughs> uh, let me let me go back. How did you, as an addict, as somebody with a teenager, manage to get on television? Where, that Do, sounds... Through BAM, right? So as a kid, Bucky Lasik and I, both from Baltimore, we would go to the skate park called Cheap Skates. At the time, I'm sponsored by Pal. Bucky's pro for Pal. And we go to Cheap Skates, and I see this kid who's my exact age. And, and as soon as I see him, I'm like he's gonna be a problem. Because he, we skated the same, we were very consistent skaters, we skated transition, we were contest skaters, we did these like outside the box kind of tricks and we totally vibed immediately and we became like thick as thieves. We're a very young age. And every year we'd show up to the, the NSAs, the National Skateboarding Association contest and we'd enter this contest in Bricktown, New Jersey and either he would win or I'd win. And all year was spent practicing for this big showdown, right? If you will. And, and then one year I didn't show up, but Bucky did. And, and Bam goes up to Bucky and he's like, yo, where's Novak? And Bucky's like, I think he's on heroin. And Bam's response was, what's that? Right, like so young, didn't even know. So with that, his career continues to excel. He's becoming a household name. Mine completely like declines. I become, I think that it makes more sense to pursue a life of heroin. Mm. And I become like this homeless heroin addict. So two careers, two different paths. And um, Bam had now created the first CKY video, which made him, you know, his first million. And then that gave way to Viva La Bam, which then gave way to Jackass. But first CKY done in the books. And then he's on a tour with, he never got, we never got him sponsored by PAL. We couldn't get him on PAL. He ended up on another company called Toy Machine and they stopped in this skate park in Baltimore. Now, mind you, this is at that point where I told you like when I'd see a skateboarder, I'd like cringe it. It's like yeah. seeing, you know, the love of your life who you swore you were gonna ride off into the sunset with and you did something to mess that up and then you see them happily with another man and another fam, like, yeah. uh. So that's what skateboarding was to me. Every time someone, I heard a board, someone brought it up in my presence, but in Baltimore, I'm like this homeless heroin addict. And, uh, and one particular day, I can't come up with any money. And when times got that bad, I'd stroll into this skate shop and hopefully someone would take pity and give me a few bucks. Times were real bad for me to do that. And on this particular day, I did it. And they're like, we're not gonna give you any money. But Bam was here yesterday with the toy machine team and he did a demo and he said, have you guys seen Novak? They said, no, we never do. And he said, well, if, if you do, Give him my number and let him know if he wants to get off heroin to call me. Mm. Timing, right? Alignment. And I didn't take him up on that offer that day, but about a week later, I went to the payphone. I put 50 cents in the payphone. I'll never forget it because I'm literally like sleeping in these abandoned houses 
and 50 cents is like everything to me. Yeah. So I, I put the 50 cents in, but I'm waiting to like hang it up in case the recorder picks up. And I call and he doesn't trust me enough to give me his number, but he gives me a number to a local skate shop. And I said, is Bam there? And they're like, who's it? Hey, Novak. They're like, well, he actually was just in here, but he's right next door at Kuma having sushi. Hold on. Well, again, alignment <laughs> yeah. and timing. They put me on hold. They go over and they get him. And that night I'm on a Greyhound bus from Baltimore going to live with him. Now at this point, he's we're doing the last CKY video, which has now transitioned to the very beginning of Viva La Bam. But I know, and I'm not in my heart of hearts, I really wanted to be done with my addiction. I really did, but I wasn't capable of, of producing those results. My And looking back, I always wondered, because I'm an intelligent guy, right? I, I pride myself on being a really outside the box thinker. And I, I was like, how do I get beat so bad? Every time I step in that ring with my opponent, like, like not like, you know, a fat lip or a, a slightly black eye. I mean, like ears cut off, eyes gouged out, teeth pulled. Like I get pulverized. And looking back, the reason why I got beat to bloody pop every time is because I never, I always underestimated the opponent that I was up against. I never gave it the time, respect, or attention it was owed and deserved. And I wasn't doing it then, right? And that was shameless plug, but my new book, The Streets of Baltimore came out and um, I just did the narration for that. And that was a really overwhelming process. Oh, it's the worst. Dude. Dude, I've, it's the worst. I've I, done it like five times. I practice by reading to my cats <laughs> oh, at home. Yeah, I'm a single guy who lives yeah. with cats and I'm like, <laughs> and I get in there and I'm like. Yeah, there's something, your mouth dries up, you can't talk right. You, Dude. Yeah. And then I had the, the, the there was like my, the publishers, they there were professional narrators on yeah. and like one was in Seattle, one was in New York, one was in LA. So they would listen to me and they'd be like, oh, nope, you swallowed the S. Mm. It, it, you got to give it this kind of like enunciation and pronunciation. And, uh, but yes, yeah, wow. so you share yeah. my pain. Yeah, dude, it's the worst. I would say like, there's almost nothing on earth I would want to do less than record an audiobook anymore. I've done it. Th that, so that was oh. my first experience. Yeah. So as an addict, I'm like, you know what? I'll just do Dream Seller too. <laughs> like, just give me more. It's just, <coughs> yeah, more pain, please. Please, yeah, I'm a glutton Ooh. for punishment. But no, so so in the streets of Baltimore, I really talk about the psychology of an addict or an alcoholic, at least mine. Yeah. And I really break down the overwhelming feeling of knowing that I'm being handed the keys to a castle, right? Like, cause Bam is at this point, he said, look, you can live with me rent free yep. in a mansion. You can drive one of my cars. You can have a credit card. You can be on a TV show and become a household name and get paid, but you can't do drugs. And drugs meaning no opiates, no yep. downers. Cocaine and alcohol were okay because it was socially acceptable, mm. right? Like I didn't fall asleep in mid-conversation. I didn't yeah. steal your wallet or your car and then disappear to Baltimore for days. But you can't, an addict can't comprehend that. Yep. And I knew throughout that process, feel like going to LA filming episodes at the Playboy Mansion, doing, now prior to this, right? Like ways the scales of justice here. Prior to this, I'm legit like a, a homeless heroin addict who spends his day standing on the corner of Eastern Avenue and Patterson Park prostituting my body to secure mm -hmm. money for heroin. By night, I sleep in this abandoned house. So we have that going on because then people were like, well, didn't you get tired of being like this punching bag and just doing anything? And I'm like, not at all. <laughs> like, yeah. the, the, If you look at what I was doing before I got there, I was like, dude, let's do this. Yeah. And again, what I didn't know was happening is that through the spiritual experience that I had, the God of my understanding, and I don't like to say God because that can be a very discouraging word to people. And I'm not religious, but I'm insanely spiritual. 
So I don't care what it is for anybody out there. I just know that it's not me. I don't know if it's a man with a beard or the ocean or what was happening is that, that I was all these defects that I was consuming me, that was consuming me and that I was killing me on a layaway plan was one day gonna become my assets and, and my poison was gonna become my medicine. And now the platform that I built through that public persona, if you will, and becoming that household name, which at the time was killing me, now I use to like share my message in a form of attraction. And they're like, oh wait, this dude's like rad. And he's like, travels around and he's covered in tattoos and he's like one of us and he skates and he's not like, he gets it. And, and therefore I'm able to break through that wall that us addicts build that's so, so unpenetrable. Yeah. I do wonder sometimes that I've said, said this in the past to other people, you know, maybe God, and, you know, and however you would define that. But like, when I look at God, I'm like, maybe God allows us, allows us to go through things like that. It doesn't stop us knowing the people we're going to rescue in the future. You know, like, hey, you might've gone through 20 years of hell and really destroyed a, a large chunk of a life, but hey, you saved these 12 people from death or these hundred people, these thousand people. Uh, and I take a lot of uh, solace of, yeah, when I when I go through hard times, I'm like, well, maybe this helps somebody somehow somewhere else. Like, I'm a, I'm a big believer in that. I, I live my life by that. Because again, at the time, what I didn't know was happening is, is that I was continuously being divinely inconvenienced mm. in a way that one day I was gonna like see exactly what was taking place. And now it's given me this ability to um, shine a light at the end of that dark drab tunnel that people don't believe uh, is winnable. And you know how I know that it's winnable is because that plot that my mother bought me is for sale today, Mm. right? Legit, my mother bought me a plot and it's still sitting in that ground and we won't use that. So you can look at the the analytics, the data that, that the society produces that says, what's the point? What's the point? He's gonna die with a needle in his arm. What's the point? The point is ask my mother, because right now she's on a cruise in Canada and she doesn't have to go to bed at night and pray to God for my death anymore, which she did for a lot of years, just so she could finally have a peace of mind knowing that I was safe once and for all. Yeah. So it depends on who you're asking for winning. Yeah. Right? Wow. Straight up. And I agree with you. So I see, I love that you said that. And people, they may very well chastise me for what I'm about to say, but this is all my perspective, my perception, my take. I see God in everything. I I see it in heroin. I see it in crack. I see it in death. I see it in destruction. Because without those things that literally brought me to my knees, I would not be the child of God I am today, who has in turn devoted my life in helping the helpless, in providing hope to the hopeless, in making the undesirable feel desired. Because I was that guy. So there's no reason you can't tell me that um, we can't change this narrative. Yeah. I love that, man. And that comes from skateboarding. That's that's awesome. Failure is not an option. Yep. No is unacceptable. Full circle. Legit. Yeah, there's, there's a verse in the Bible that says something. I'm going to butcher the, the, the line, but it basically says that God works all things uh, together for those who love him. Like that works all things for good. And so like he can take the crap and, and the heroin uh, and yes. works it. Doesn't mean he causes it, but he works it for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I think is what it is. I was just, again, doing that DEA event, right? Yep. And they bring me in to be the keynote speaker. And there's this another woman. There's this other woman who's on there at the panel 
And this woman was a very well-to-do, middle-class woman, family, husband, and the kids were uh, in their freshman years of college. They, she had two kids and they went out to party. Good college football playing kids. Mm-hmm. And that night they decided to buy us some Xanax mm-hmm. and they get some Xanax and it's pressed with fentanyl. And that night mm-hmm. they both die in wow. that house together, same time. This woman has lost both of her children. Jeez. And she now speaks all over the nation, right? And and she's sitting next to me and we both had given our talk. And, and she said, you know, my, my, my children died and they never had a chance to live up to their full potential. And I said, um, I followed her and I said, look, I mean no harm and I'll never pretend to understand the pain that you felt. I will not do that. But what I can tell you is that I do not agree with the statement you just gave. I believe your kids lived up to more of their potential than they even knew they possessed. Why? Because, you know, people say, how do we lift the stigma? How do we lift the stigma? The stigma is lifting because the death toll is rising. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, people are, are, are gaining attention. Now the DEA has ventured out to bring me and this woman on to give these talks and through their death, I was provided a life. And you know who thanks her and her two deceased sons? My mother, mm. right? And them giving their life has not only saved my life, but countless others yeah. that she, you know, so it, it just depends on how deep you wanna go down that rabbit hole, right? Like yeah. my, I just met your child, yeah. beautiful child, beautiful child playing out there. But here's what I can promise you. My sobriety has allowed one less of my needles to be found on your child's playground, mm. straight up. You know, so yeah. we can, and that's the truth. Yeah. But people really don't like hear that often. Yeah, that's good, man. I found that verse, by the way, Alex pulled it up, uh, Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's such a, yeah. a good reminder in life. that It is. Yeah, it's like things don't happen to you, they happen for you. Yes. Yeah. Rejection is God's protection. Mm. I, and understanding that, right? I don't have to go to work to pay my bills. I get to go to work yeah. and pay my bills. Those yeah. two yeah. simple shifts in words can Huge. change my perspective. And then they taught me a treatment. If I change my perspective, I could change my world. Mm. Because for so many years I was the victim, right? Like how dare them do that to me? If only like I just would have did it this way, I would have gotten this result. And the, the reality was when I was ready to become accountable for my actions, my life started to change. And now I see the part that I've played. Yeah. And it's like, not why me, more like, why not me? Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, why not me? <laughs> if justice was due, I'd be dead yep. years ago. Yeah. I'm here on borrowed time. Yeah. Therefore, like I've chosen, I, I've been chosen. I've been chosen to devote my life. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And I legit was going to say, I chose, I didn't choose anything either. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the beautiful thing. I have this awareness. Yeah. Ignorance is no longer bliss. For years, I just kind of like strolled through life. And if I knocked this over, if I kicked this over, if I stole some money, if I did, eh. yeah, right? But now like I've, I've acquired some information and some knowledge, which means I'm to be held accountable for my actions. And it doesn't matter how I feel about you at all because my life is lived through principles, not personalities. Mm-hmm. And after all, you are God's children which despite me not liking you one bit, makes you my brother. Mm. 
That's awesome, man. Hopefully you like me at least some. I do. No. <laughs> we share names. You share one of my best we're, friends. We're pretty much related. This so. is it. <laughs> you know, it's funny actually to go back to that story about uh, Brandon Turner, the other Brandon Turner. When I was first like getting into the internet world 15, 16 years ago, I remember Googling my name and like every single one is Brandon Turner <laughs> yeah. and how great he is. And it's not me. It's a black skateboarder. And I was like, someday I'm going to reclaim Google for my name. So now we shared about 50 totally. If you Google my name. And he's are, doing like, I'm working he, on he it, man. too has. I'm checking this out right now. Hang Check on. it out. <laughs> Oh boy! Yeah, you too. <laughs> but he's 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 found recovery. He's oh, wow. opened a treatment center. Him and I are like we have plans to do something on the West Coast in the future. Wow. I'd love to connect you. Dude, with him. I would love to. Inter- Brandon, you Turner have and Brandon to. Turner on a podcast I would could, be legit. Dude, I, I talk to him dude, almost every day. I'll dude, make it yeah. happen for you that'd for be, sure. That'd be awesome. That's my guy. Dude, I love it. That'd be, that would be a podcast. Right? <laughs> That's now, the too. point of all yeah, this I know. to connect <laughs> right this Brandon to connect That's the two right. real Brandons. That, that, <laughs> I love it, man. All right, dude. All right. So many good things I want to go do. Let me ask you this question. When people are struggling with their family members on drugs yeah, and they're like, my, you know, my cousin, my sister, my spouse, my brother, and they do not want to quit. How do I help them? How do we help somebody who doesn't seem to want to be helped? For sure. Let them hit rock bottom. I believe, um, you know, again, people were helping me when I didn't believe they were helping me, right? Mm-hmm. Like every time I go to those treatment centers and I'd leave and I'd be like, this doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Like, why would I go back? I, I didn't know that these miracles were taking place. Yeah. So again, with my experience, the very best thing that initiated this chain of events that I was never pleased with, that was helping me, not hurting me, was the day that I came home and my mother had changed the lock, mm-hmm. right? At a young age. And I, it was this glass door and I could see her and I'm knocking on the door and I'm like 17 years old at this point. And, uh, and she's like, I'm not letting you in. Mm. And at that time, I threw everything under the sun at her. It's my father's fault and you stayed married to my father and, and how dare you allow him in, but not me. And you know, like all this really hateful, hurtful stuff because I was a hurt person and I was hurting people. Yeah. So that, that made sense to me. But that paired with creating these healthy boundaries because For me, I'm the kind of addict, if you tell me you love me, that means I got you for at least 10 bucks. Mm. And that progressed. And unfortunately, my disease got so big that I lose the pleasure or privilege to having a say-so in my life anymore. Mm. So like, again, two ex-fiancés, why are there two? Because they had a, a pattern of attempting to stand between me and my drugs and alcohol. And when that happens, they must and will go. And it's, it's never personal, it's just business. Yeah. Because we're good hearted people, really. So the boundaries, the loving me from a distance, I'm an interventionist as well, right? And I'm actually fly back Thursday, late Wednesday night to Thursday, and then Friday morning, I'm, I'm doing an intervention in Maryland. And I explained to this family, a very nice, well-to-do, affluent family. In there. And go figure, the son's not willing to accept help. So I use this analogy all the time. You put a mouse into a shoebox and there's eight holes in this shoebox. How do you get the mouse to go out of one particular hole? By closing the other seven off. Mm -hmm. So more often than not, it's a long game play, right? And uh, you just kind of create repercussions for the addict or alcoholic to experience because then it no longer becomes like so fun or desirable. It's not like, you know, when I no longer have a refrigerator to, to go into or a bed to get into or a shower to wash out, you know, like then it becomes a little more real. Yeah. So I'm a big fan. I'm not the guy that people come to when they want an easier, softer way. Yeah. My sponsor, one of my mentors, 
right? Show me who you walk with, I'll tell you who you are. This guy is, is near and dear to my life. He would always tell me, you never get between an, an alcoholic and their bottom, right? You allow them to feel that. Yeah. And he would do that with me, a product of my environment, I'd do it with others. One of my friends from high school got real deep into heroin. Her parents first tried to help, you know, as much as they could. They tried to like, you know, like, well, support her. But eventually they finally said, it's not, it's not stopping in her twenties. And so they finally just said, fine, you're on your own. And they, they left. And then for a decade, she just drug, like really drug along the bottom for a long time and just would continually crash on the bottom. And I know the parents, her parents were asking themselves every single day, like, did we do the, is this the right thing? Are we killing her instead of yeah. helping her? And that was the constant fear. I just couldn't imagine them going through that. But I mean, today she's gone through treatment. She's back with them. Uh, she's, I mean, it took a decade. Yeah. So it's like, it, it worked. It just didn't happen overnight. And that that's it. surprised everyone. I thought- And that's the yeah. tough thing about it. Yeah. You know, I always say, if you baby an addict, you'll bury an addict. Ooh. And the thing that my mother said to me at the very end, when I showed up at her doorstep at 38 years old, right? I had become this, this published author. I'd been in these movies that broke box office records, pro skater, like had done some things in life. At 38 years old, I was standing on my mother's stoop in Baltimore city and she had just handed me my belongings. Uh, and everything that I owned consisted of eight scarves, two jackets, three socks, a stick of deodorant, and a needle and a spoon. And it all fit into this bag that doubled as my pillow, right? And with that, a police officer comes around the corner and he said, are you Mr. Novak? And I said, yes. And he said, this is for you. And I opened up the piece of paper and it's a restraining order. Mm. He said, if I catch you back on your mother's premises again, I will not be so kind, I promise you. In that very moment, I looked at my mother and generally my behavioral pattern would exhibit me trying to walk my way out of this, talk my way out of this, right? Like my book, Dream Seller is titled, as such, because I sold dreams for a living. That's how I lived. I made you believe the unbelievable in hopes that I was going to do better, be better, or get better. And it always started with just give me 10 bucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, for the first time in my life, right, I, I recognized the severity of my situation. My words held no more weight. I couldn't even deny that. And I looked at her and all I said to her was, um, I said, mom, do you hate me? And she said, uh, <laughs> she said, no, sweetheart, I'll never hate you but I'll no longer love you to death. You have to go. And the worst part about that is that I knew I had created that outcome. Completely self-induced. I had nobody to blame my shit on anymore. And at that point, no matter how much heroin I stuck into my arm, wine I shoved down my throat, this delusional effect was no longer produced. Meaning that I could no longer escape the reality that I had created for myself, which is why I continued to get high, right? Prostituting my body, homeless, sleeping in abandoned houses is, is, is not like, not even tolerable. But let me shoot some heroin, drink some wine, eat some pills. Not only does it become tolerable, it almost becomes like desirable, right? This perspective changes, delusional narrative that only exists in my mind. But now at the end, I'm a 38 year old who's, who's literally burnt every bridge known to man, no matter how much I, I put into my arm or down my throat, that delusional effects no longer produced. Now I can't even escape my reality. That moment of clarity is, is 24 seven when I'm high and when I'm sober. Ugh. And at this point, at this point, I'm just like, all I wanna do is kill myself on a daily basis, but I'm just terrified to hurt myself in the process. Yeah. So I'm like stuck in this weird purgatory place that I don't see a way out of. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't. I'm so low 
I'm so low that like the curb looks like a skyscraper for real. And then I ended up in that treatment center and a mentor, a predecessor, and today a very dear friend of mine's video was played. And his name is Chris Herring. And he played for the, the Denver Nuggets and the Boston Celtics. He has a story that has depth and weight. And although I didn't believe in me, I believed in his story. And I could relate to what he talked about. And at one point in his story, he was in a rehab and counselor called him in and said, hey, Mr. Basketball, I want you to do me a favor and I want you to do your family the biggest favor you'll ever do for them in your life. He said, what's that? And he dials the wife's number. He said, I want you to call your wife and I want you to tell your wife to tell your kids that their fathers died in an overdose. Wow. And I could relate to that because that's the only way that he was capable of stopping the pain that he was causing his family, his addiction. And he was no longer like that. And I swear to God, I was like, if he can do it, I got up out of that room. I, I hadn't cried for years. I was so dehumanized, right? I was so desensitized and dehumanized that like it was just par for the course. Like, here we go. Yeah. And, and I literally have forgotten what it felt like to cry. And, and I got up out of that room and I'll never forget. I went outside and I cried. And I cried because I believed like that I was worthy and that like I could do it too. And it had been a long time since I had any optimism about any future. I, I was so defeated and in seeing the, and that again is why I've devoted my life to do what he did for me. And in doing so, you know, him and I are like this and, and that's beautiful. What is the first step to getting sober? For me, it was just admitting defeat. It was admitting defeat, but you know what? I didn't even admit defeat. And, and that's the, the tricky process of, of recovery, right? Like when I walked into that facility, despite telling you how bad things were, I knew that like I had said that they were bad a lot of times before. Yeah. I knew that and I would call and I would tell you how bad things were and how sorry I am and how I was never gonna return. And I meant what I said, yeah. but I didn't understand what I suffered with. I wasn't armed with the facts. I never gave addiction the attention or time it deserved to learn about my opponent. My history continued to repeat and created my future over and over. And then at this last time, I started to understand it like all those things of all those facilities that they attempted to throw at me that I thought were just like ricochet and really were absorbing. And it was like the sky had parted and I had walked across and I, I was like, you know what? I don't know if I'm done drinking or drugging. I don't. But what I do know is that my pain is so unbearable. I just wanted to stop. And I went in and because of the pain, pain is the motivating factor for me that creates change. I don't unbearable to me, you know, unmanageability to me is like a Monday morning cup of tea. I only change when the pain is unbearable. When my back's against the wall, I have no other option way out of the particular situation I created for myself, but I have to act quick because that window of opportunity for change is, is the same size as a $10 bill. I'll come up on a $10 bill, buy a bag of heroin, put it in my arm and all of a sudden, whoa, 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 whoa. This was, this was just an overreaction at best, fellas. Yeah. Right? You just call me at a bad time on a bad way in a bad day. Yeah. Tomorrow will be different. And I mean that. I mean that. I'll pass a polygraph. Tomorrow will be different. Yeah. But unfortunately, I wake up tomorrow to repeat yesterday's actions and I'm stuck in Groundhog's Day for 10, 20 years. Yeah. So what happened was I started to buy into what they were suggesting, which they'd always been suggesting at every treatment center, but the pain was just so unbearable that I'm like, okay. And, and I got into it. And what happened was I started to feel a little bit better. And then I started to feel a little bit better. And then I started to like really believe in myself. And then staying sober long enough, I was created this beautiful life that now today, the thought of going back and returning to a drink or a drug is absolutely insane. 
But that's because I remain proactive in my process and my recovery and my sobriety. And what I know is that today I suffer with a disease called alcoholism, not alcoholism. So I can't mm. stay sober on yesterday's sobriety. My sobriety has a shelf life of 24 hours. Mm. You know, so I remain teachable. I remain humble. And the coolest thing about sobriety is the longer I stay sober, the more I know that I have no idea. And that relinquishes me of all control, which is great because addicts and alcoholics love to not have a lot of things to yeah. live up to, yeah. right? I'm not in control <laughs> of any of it. My higher power runs the whole deal. Yeah. This thing works when I don't work it. So when I just get out of my way and follow like the suggestions of people that really genuinely believe in me, my life gets good. Mm. What is the 12 step program you're on? Is that like, how does that work? I go to AA. Okay. Yeah. And I always say the God of my understanding brought me to AA and AA via the 12 steps brought me back to the God of my understanding. Mm. Cause what happened is through experiencing the 12 steps, I had a, a spiritual experience. And the definition of a spiritual experience is simply a psychic change. Meaning that I, Brandon Novak today with coming up on nine years sober, no longer think how I thought when I was standing in front of my mother's house and she handed me my eight scarves, two jackets, three socks, stick a deodorant, needle, spoon, and a restraining order. I'm a completely different man. I've been rewired. And the most beautiful thing about it is I just got here because I, I dumbed my way into it. <laughs> I didn't like go to school. I didn't like, you know, acquire all these certifications or degrees. I was kicked out of 11th grade as a direct result of my addiction. Mm. I got my GED in prison. Today I get paid to speak at universities. You know, that's not bragging or boasting. That's just me saying like anything is obtainable. Yeah. Anything is. The question is, what are you willing to do to get it? I wasn't willing to do what they suggested because it didn't really fit my schedule, yeah. right? The, the, the woman wasn't quite pretty enough that was suggesting that I, you know, I, I would do A if it, if it felt right and B if it aligned with my day, but C, I, I, I just like to take, you know, and then yeah. until I like really bought in and I'm like, so today what I, I, I kind of live a code of conduct, a, a set of um, principles I refuse to barter with. What are some of the things that you do today to maintain your sobriety? Like do you avoid bars? Do you avoid no, restaurants? that's like the that? rad thing, dude. So for my, for my four year anniversary, I went to Amsterdam mm. to an AA meeting and picked up my four year medallion. Wow. Most people don't equate Amsterdam and recovery. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the truth be told, I'm, like, I'm a free man. Like I, I didn't get sober to live in a, a church basement going to these meetings. Yeah. Trust me, nothing's wrong with the people that do. God bless him. We all need all walks of life everywhere. But for me, getting sober was just the beginning. And if I got sober just to get sober, I would have sold myself short so bad. I'm no longer desired by a drink or a drug. Right now, at this exact moment, I can't go have a drink. Yeah. I can't go bag of heroin, buy a bag of heroin. I physically can't. Yes, I could walk down the street, go to the pub and buy it. But with everything that I'm doing being in alignment, my body would not carry through with those actions. Yeah. How, how do you su suggest people like myself or, I mean, anybody in this room, like how do we, when we have people in our world that are sober recovering addicts, how do we act around them? What I mean by that is like, do we invite them out to the restaurant and do we, like, how do you, how do you interact with somebody where you're not sure if that might cause them problems without it being weird and me asking sure. every time, like, Hey, is this okay for you to be able to go to totally. monkey, monkey pod tonight? You're like, yeah. yeah. How do we deal with that? And it's always going to be weird. It's yeah. always that elephant in the room that yeah, yeah. is never really easy to get into. But I think for me, 
early on, I wasn't placing myself in positions where people were inviting me out mm -hmm. to bars. And if I did, my people would have recognized that and been like, uh. And, and I don't think they would have necessarily said something to me. They probably just wouldn't have invited me out yeah. to begin with. Early on, I tell the people I work with that live in my houses, that go to my treatment center, that, you know, you keep going to that barber shop, you'll get a haircut. But now today I, I sponsor people in the program that are thorough through and through alcoholics that are bartenders. Mm. Wow. You know, you can get sober in a crack house if you're ready. Yeah. When the student's ready, the teacher will appear. But it's better to be safe than sorry. So for the very long-winded answer to that short question is to just be mindful, I'd, I'd suggest. It's never a good idea for somebody early in recovery to hang out in pubs. Yeah, that or, makes sense. Or go to a, an opium field. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just have oh, a boy, camp, have a, have a cookout. <laughs> yeah, is there some part of, the, part of that where it's like you brainwash yourself with normal? I know it's not 100%, but if you hang out with people that are sober, likelihood that you'll be sober. And if you hang out with people that are like, doing drugs then likelihood that you're gonna do drugs. Yeah, 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 definitely. Don't you tip don't, the bear sort of thing. Totally. Um, so it's like, they always say, you know, you need to change people, places and things mm. early on in recovery. And my story was not that. Yes, it's recommended, I recommend it to my clients, change people, places and things. But it, my story, I had no people to change. Everyone literally loved me from a distance. Mm. Places I had to change were the corner of Eastern Avenue and Patterson Park where I was prostituting my body that I didn't want to be at anyway. So it wasn't like, ah, you know, it's gonna be hard for me to stay away from there. And things didn't exist. All I owned was eight scarves, two jackets, three socks, a needle, a spoon, and a restraining order, like legit. So I didn't have to worry about that. But what happened was I didn't have to call my friends, none of like Bam or, or my skater friends or TV friends and be like, I can't be with you because like you guys are, are drinking and that's not conducive to my recovery. What happened was, as a direct result of the pain, I bought into the, the concept of what recovering people do, all of it. And then I started to change. My interests, my behaviors, my surroundings, they started to change. And then what happened was, I was no longer interested in doing what they were doing. And I promise you, they would not be interested in doing what I was doing. So although we still loved each other just as much, like you don't wanna to come to an AA meeting with me and then go back to my sober living house where I live and then go to Marianne's diner where I wash dishes Monday through Friday for six bucks an hour. Like, and I didn't wanna go with them to the pub and then fly to here and then, you know, like yeah. our interest had just changed, but, but we never had to say like, this isn't gonna work. And yeah. that was a really beautiful thing. That makes sense. Yeah. So how did you go then, the, the, you're on the show. I wanna go back to your story and then get to a, a little bit of real estate cause you know, I'm a real estate nerd. You were on the show. Did you get booted off the show because of drugs? Did the show just end or how did, how did that transition happen? And then what came uh, next? All of the above. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like the crazy thing about Viva La Bam and Jackass is, is the character that I played was literally a junkie's dream. Mm. And that's the crazy thing. Addiction and alcoholism is, is so delusional. It makes us believe the unbelievable, right? So let me start there and then I can kind of dive into that a little bit more to allow the viewer to understand the complexity of the situation, yeah. the gravity at hand. If you've been diagnosed as an addict or an alcoholic and you've accepted that diagnosis, this is not debatable, it's an absolute fact. All that means is that I've been diagnosed with a disease, addiction or alcoholism, that if left untreated, it equates to death. That's a fact. You can Google that, you can pull it up, non-negotiable. Paired with the fact that I have this alcoholic brain that lies to me in my own voice, that makes me believe the unbelievable. Paired with the fact that I've now been diagnosed 
with as far as I'm aware of the only fatal disease that lies to me in my own voice, making me believe the unbelievable, telling me I no longer have this disease. Why? Because I've went to treatment, I've completed a 30-day stay, my life's gotten really good really quick, and now I don't accept that diagnosis anymore because I've got the family back, I've got mm -hmm. the career back, uh, you know, maybe things are different. Follow me, diagnose me with HIV. I'm rushing to the hospital to get medication. I don't wanna die, fatal disease. Diagnose me with cancer. I'm rushing to the hospital to get chemo. I don't wanna die, fatal disease. Diagnose me as an addict or an alcoholic. I now need to have a glass of wine or a bag of heroin to figure out what the fuck is wrong with you for diagnosing me with said disease. Mm. Just as fatal as the first two diseases, but it's not like your voice comes in my head and says, ah, oh, Novak, you're not an addict. And I can be like, ah, oh, fuck you, stranger danger. <laughs> it's my voice your in my head. head that makes me believe the unbelievable. That is like insanity. That's terrifying. So understanding that, now we're gonna transition into the question that you asked. The role that I played, the character I was perceived to be as being this addict, alcoholic, this Novak guy who doesn't care about much, does whatever he wants, wherever he wants, with whomever he wants, the, the more outrageous my behaviors are, the more outlandish the antics become, the better the ratings, yeah. the, high, the more I'm in demand, the more money I make. Yeah. So that paired with all these other delusional things, that's like a junkie's dream. Yeah. And it was great until it was no longer great. When like, I then started to like not show up for things. I then started to, to show up and not out and overdose in the bathroom and have drug dealers showing up you know, banging on the tour bus doors, saying like, where's Novak, he owes us money. And, and now that's not a good look for the work world. Yeah. So eventually everyone felt that it was better for things to go on without me. And that's a common theme in my life. But unfortunately, right, I would tell myself like the jackass world needs me, the Viva La Band world needs me, it cannot go on without me, I am an asset. The reality is the Viva La Band world does not need me. It goes on quite fine without me and I'm a liability, but I'm the last person to realize that because I possess that job that consists of knowing everything. So then like fast forward to that 38 year old guy standing on his mother's porch as she says like, she'll no longer love me to death anymore. I got there by way of, we were to, to head out to this tour in Australia and we were meeting at Bam's house and I showed up at Bam's house highly, highly, highly intoxicated and under the influence of copious amounts of heroin, cocaine, Xanax, and some wine. And, uh, and as soon as I walked through the door, he looked at me immediately and he said, we're not doing this. Like, don't even think that you're going on this tour. And he had my ticket and he literally ripped it up in front of my face. And he kicked me out of his house right wow. there on the spot. Wow. At this point, I'm 38 years old. I have no driver's license. I've literally burnt the last bridge that was providing me any form of resource or resurrection. And I'm just standing in his driveway and he's instructed everyone to just leave me be. And I literally have, and, and I'm like, so I carry my suitcase up to the top of the street. I make a phone call. I stay at this woman's house and then she gives me money to get a bus back to Baltimore. But that's what I really dive into with the streets of Baltimore. I, I, I get into the psychology of, of knowing that like I'm being offered the keys to this kingdom, but it's only a matter of time before, not before it's ripped out from under my feet, before I literally light a mm. lighter and burn it all. And like, I, I couldn't control my behaviors. And that really, really, really was a hard pill to swallow. 
so that's was the kind of end to what could have been a really uh, successful career. What I thought was the end. Yeah. Little did I know it was just the beginning. Yeah. It was just the beginning. You mentioned the character you played, that interesting phrase. How much of the reality show was, or the shows, how much was you, and just maybe an exaggerated form of you, was it you or were you like, when you I, you put yourself into a character and you're acting, like how much was real, how much was acting? It was totally me. Mm. But but the role that I played was this drug addict guy from Baltimore who doesn't care about anything and does whatever he wants, yeah. wherever he wants. Yeah. And remember I told you before, I, like I was not allowed to do opiates, yep. right? I could do Coke, I could drink, it's socially acceptable. Therefore, talking about weighing the scales of justice, prior to being on this show, I'm a homeless heroin addict in Baltimore who does ungodly things to get money. Now I'm on this show, I'm getting paid by Paramount, I'm becoming a household name, and uh, I'll do any stunt that nobody wants any part of. Why? A, it'll get me screen time, which equals more money, and here's the golden ticket that people aren't quite privy to. If I get hurt, then I get rushed to the hospital, the doctor gives me a script of pain pills, Mm. I get a free high, and everyone has to like condone it. (laughs) Wow. And I'm getting paid for doing that. I'm getting paid to get hurt, to get pills. It's all perspective. So you say lost, I say jackpot, dummy. (laughs) (laughs) It's like straight up. The abnormal had become the normal. Like, so when you were like, Novak, your life's unmanageable. I'm like, you have no clue, you loser. And straight up, like I was really disconnected from reality for like a long time. I bet. Oh, wild man. Yeah, did you like, I mean, did you like getting hurt? Yeah. Jackass, like, yeah, totally. Oh. Yeah. I didn't like it, but okay. I was like, it wasn't personal. It was just business. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like straight up. Yeah. You can see on one of the people of Bams, or I think it was Bams Unholy Union when he got yeah. married and Tony Hawk flew in and they built this humongous ramp with this roll in kind of rainbow deal. And I was just doing what I always do. And I hadn't skated in God knows how long, but I'm going to do this this day. Hawk flew in and I borrow someone's bored and I put someone else's shoes on and that's not like what skaters, like I have to have my own setup. And I, I attempt to do this and it's the day before Bam's wedding, like for real. And uh, I make it to 12 o'clock and just stop and straight down, I snap both of my ankles. Oh jeez, Literally both of them. And I, and they, it's all on film. They take me to the hospital and I come back and they, that was, a, it was like the best day ever. <laughs> you would think it'd be the worst, but it was the best. I couldn't even come up with this. The more I think about it, they carry me in, they take me over to the sofa and I'm literally shaking my pocket and you can just hear pills jingling. Mm. So now I get this free high, everyone has to wheelchair me around and they have to take care of this invalid crippled guy. Cool, which is amazing at the time. But what I didn't know is the last day of the shoot was the day that Bam gets filmed. Iggy Pop plays at the wedding, it's this big like, and then filming's done, which means I'm done getting paid. Mm. But what I wasn't... <laughs> What I wasn't intelligent enough to understand because I was never a productive member of society is now that I'm eligible for workman's comp. MTV puts it all together and I'm now, I've went back to Baltimore. I'm staying with my first ex-fiance at her house. It's during the winter and I'm receiving like four grand a week. Laid up pain pills. Now I have like four grand. I'm just buying. I bought her all new furniture to keep her like, off my stuff yeah. <laughs> and I'm just like going to, but I'd be going to, to buy heroin and, and I would, I didn't have a license. So I would get a cab down and I would always lose the wheelchair. Cause I would just get so high. I'd, oh. And I remember it was a snowstorm and I literally was 
top of the alley. I had the cab driver pull at this side of the alley because they're at the other end of the alley selling the drugs. And I jumped out and I remember just like sliding my butt down oh, to like buy. <laughs> like that's where I was at. Wow. <laughs> so it's all perspective. Wow, man. <laughs> All right, let's shift a little bit and talk about real estate. You got you got some sober living house. What is that for you? How'd you get into that world? So again, never had any desire to care or want about real estate at all. Anything I have in my life that's good for me happened unbeknownst to me, mm. straight up. I'm not nearly intelligent enough to create this outcome, and I know that. I have a pretty good idea of some things that are going on, but like really things work when I just stay out of it. Yeah. I went to treatment for 90 days and I went to a state funded place that cost $2 to get into, right? I didn't, and, and if most people would say no one could ever get sober in that place, like it was that kind of place, yeah. but I did. While in there, my sponsor, who always said you never get between an alcoholic and their bottom, he had gotten sober in California and he lived in a sober living house for a year. So he said to me, I suggest that you do what I did and go to a sober living for you. So I did. And in that sober living house, I had, learned things that no one had ever taught me. Not because like they just were rude to me. It's just because I was in a different place. I learned how to do my own laundry, right? Like uh, I remember that I had this job and I was washing dishes for $6 an hour under the table at 38 after being a pretty established guy next to a 14 year old kid. And in my mind, I thought I should have at least been the president of the United States, yeah. <laughs> not like busting suds in this diner for six bucks an hour next to a 14 year old kid. And I'm there and I have this black outfit, black shirt, black pants, black shoes, but I'd wash my pants and they'd always come out bleached. And I didn't understand why until, funny enough, my partner in the houses, and I'll get to that in a second, Greek, his name's George. He walked past me one day when I was doing laundry and he said, what are you doing? I said, laundry. He said, you can't use dishwashing detergent in the laundry room. Like I did not know that. <laughs> I'd opened my own very first ever checking account, which turned into like a pre-secured credit card. But I kept going to these meetings and those weird sober cult like people would say things like, in order to keep what you have, you have to give it away. And I lived in that sober living house for a year. And then me, Greek, my partner in the sober living houses now, we both resided in there. We then got our own apartment in the city. And we said that when we found ourselves in a position where we were financially capable, we were going to recreate what worked for us. Mm. And I have a financial advisor lady. She's a sober lady. I meet all my people through sobriety and, and she helps so many people. And I, I'm talking to her one day in Wilmington, Delaware. I have no connection to Wilmington, Delaware. The only thing that's really, that lives in Delaware are weird incorporations that are parked there for tax yeah. purposes. Yeah. I'm not intelligent enough to know this. <laughs> But she works there and I said, you know, Susie, one day I want to open a sober living house. She's like, do it in Delaware. I'm like, okay. So then I got to the position where I could do that. And me and my partner, we bought our first house. And we had one house with 10 beds, November 2nd. Math's not my forte, but almost three years ago. So 21, I guess. Yeah. November 2nd of 21. Today we have uh, six houses with 65 beds. Now I wish there was no demand. I wish my services were not rendered, required or desired. I wish I was out of business, I really do. Yeah. But it is, and I've learned in recovery that I can create the environment that I seek. Failure is not an option. You cannot tell me I can't do anything. Like I can be a brain surgeon if I want. If I devote my time, effort, yeah. energy and attention, I can do that. So then at the volume that we were growing, I'm like, dude, I can help more. I can do better. So then I opened up a Redemption Addiction Treatment Center, also in Wilmington, Delaware. And it's 13 minutes away from the 
properties, which is my lucky number. Mm-hmm. Literally, if you go to 1211 West A Street, which is the very first house, type in 1819 Newport Road, where my treatment center is, 13 minutes. Mm. Not even making it up. And the majority of the guys in the house utilize my my program, you know? And, yeah. and today I, I have like six properties and I own a building that is a treatment center. Yeah. Some, well, seven if I have my own house. Yeah. yeah. That's and we'll buy more properties. Who pays the rent uh, like for the beds? Is that government? Is that private? No, I, I refuse to take grants from anybody. Not grants, but I refuse to take any money from the state because then I have to become their puppet. Mm. And I don't play well with others. Guys speaking my language. <laughs> yeah, dude. I, I'm defiant by nature, man. Yeah. Like, so, so I don't need to do that. And I don't charge a ton of money. I provide scholarships for anybody in need. That generally covers them for about their first month until we can readjust them into society, get them adequate work to where they become a self-sufficient, productive, tax-paying member of society, which yeah. then in turn saves us money, yeah. right? If you go down that really that hole, and then they start paying their own rent, and their own rent is $180 a week. Mm. So I'm not like breaking the bank. Yeah, yeah. Literally, all that's happening is the house has become self-sufficient so that one day at the end of my game, yeah. I'll just own all these properties outright. I love it. There's a There's a process I teach all the time to people. I've been doing it for years, but uh, you met one of my kids earlier, but my other one, Rosie, uh, who's a little bit older now, she's seven, but when the week she was born, I bought her a property, I bought a fourplex. And uh, just a simple little dumpy property needed to be fixed up, but if we fix it up, but then I put it on an 18 year mortgage. So it'd be paid off in 18 years. Why? Because even if I never got any money from it, no cash flow, even if it never went up in value, you know, even if I never got any tax benefits, which there are some, even if that happened, at least in 18 years, that property's paid off to zero. Yeah. I don't so now she has her whole college education paid for. Right. Uh, we just sell the property or refinance it. Ironically, that property has more than tripled in value since I bought it seven years ago. But, and that wasn't yeah. your intention. Yeah, that wasn't your intention. That, See, yeah, it's that's just, it. That's why we love real estate. Because it's like, and, yeah, and, and none, of, none of what I'm doing was financially incentivized. Yeah. And none of it is. I swear to God, it's not. I don't yeah. go into it saying, and like, I don't even know how much they're worth. And yeah. I, I didn't even know that you could take whatever you can go yeah, to the, the refinance yeah. to get yeah, yeah. like that. I knew none of that. Yeah. I got my GED in prison. Yeah. <laughs> and the only reason why I got my GED there is because if you pass the GED, you got a pizza party supplied yeah. by Domino's. Yeah. And I love Domino's. <laughs> it became my idea. I aced that test like I was a Harvard graduate. <laughs> <laughs> it's all deliverance, man. Yeah, dude, that's amazing. So yeah, I'm a real estate guy now. Yeah. And I, I have a lot of real estate. Yeah, isn't that funny? Yeah, real <laughs> it's one of those things that's so hard to... It's so hard to screw up. And I also, like people ask me why I got into real estate. I'm like, cause I wasn't dumb enough for like, the, or I wasn't smart enough for stocks. Totally. I wasn't dumb enough, dumb enough to do nothing, but I wasn't smart enough for stocks. So I'm like, well, real estate's kind of right in the middle. Like, <laughs> yeah. like I buy something, I pay it off over time. It hopefully goes up in value. As long as I can rent it out to make enough money, I'm going to be okay. And yeah, you, like, you just buy one property anywhere right now. And then 30 years from now, it's worth three, four, five, 10 times more. Guess what? You're a millionaire. It's off like totally. One. Yeah. And I, I had no, I had no desire. I again was just doing what those weird old sober people suggested in the yeah. beginning that they said in order to keep what you have, you have to give it away. So yeah. I'm like, dude, let's just make yeah. the sober. Because me and my buddy, we lived in that sober house. Yeah. And we were products of that environment. Yeah. And now, uh, literally, they just pay for themselves. Yeah. You know, and I just provide scholarships. I've only pulled money out of that. They're called Novak's house. Uh, I've only pulled money out three times in the, the time that it's existed. Yeah. I don't even know what's in the accounts, yeah. like legit. Um, it was never my primary source of income. It's not yeah. my partner's either. Yeah. He's a master electrician. Mm. But uh, it works really well because like it's done for the right reason. I love it. 
I love it, man. All right, well, we got to start wrapping this thing up. I got a few questions here. That's a here. shame. I really enjoy I know, talking I, to you, man. We're, we're, we're gonna keep going a this little longer, cool. but I got uh, I got three segments. And yeah, I'm, yeah. Gonna, I'm gonna throw them at you. And we'll we'll get deep in here. First segment is called the three, two, one pivot. But the idea is this: in life, you're going one direction, and then something changes, and you pivot another direction, right? So there's I'm gonna ask you three books that change the direction of your life, two people that change the direction of your life, and one quote. We'll start with the books. If you have any books or even resources, but we'll, we'll start with books. Books would be uh, my dear friend who was not my friend in the beginning through sobriety has become a mentor of mine, James Frey. Okay. He wrote the infamous book, A Million Little Pieces mm. that was turned into a movie yeah. that inspired me to write my book. I went to the Barnes and Nobles. I got his book, looked at the outline for his book, and then used it to write mine. Yeah. So that was a million little pieces. And the two other books of his that I loved, big fan, is uh, My Friend Leonard and mm -hmm. Pink Ashtray. All right. Love it, man. All right. Two pivot people. People have changed the direction of your life. Bucky Lasik. Which I used to play Bucky on uh, Tony Hawk Pro Skater. Yeah. Yeah, that was my character. <laughs> you <laughs> Yeah, basically the same. <laughs> I'm we have the same friend, all right? Yeah, we you know? do, we yeah. do. And my mother, my mother should have came before Bucky, but she mm. she was the woman that, uh, she taught me what genuine, sincere love is without any conditions, mm. relentlessly, to a fault. And I've become her, and uh, she's everything to me. She's literally my life. You know, I, I dedicate everything that I have to her. Oh. I love it. How did you guys patch things up? I mean, she, there was that scene, you're 38. She yeah, it's funny. I, I give talks all over the nation and I, I tell people, be careful Be careful what you ask for in sobriety because if you stay sober, you're going to get it. <laughs> and, and my mother, uh, juxtaposition, right? Everybody gets a term. My mother, I love more than anything in this world. She's this insanely intelligent woman, but the older she gets, the more she reverts to like childlike behaviors. <laughs> and she lives it by herself in Baltimore and two things she doesn't, what she loves in life is cigarettes, mm. Rod Stewart and giraffes. What she dislikes is showers and brushing her teeth. Mm. Her diet consists of candy, junk, you name it. So um, she called me about a month ago and said, can you take me to the dentist? And I, I drive down, I take her to the dentist. They extract eight teeth from her mouth. Mm. I put her in my, and the only reason why I'm saying this, it makes sense to say, I put her in my Range Rover and, and she's in the passenger seat. I don't smoke, and I, I take care of my stuff and I have like a really nice Range Rover. And I, I go to the Safeway directly across the street from the dentist office to go in to get her scripts filled. She's just had eight teeth extracted. She's got galls coming out, blood literally protruding out. I come out from getting her script filled. I just see her nodded out in the passenger seat of my range with blood and galls coming out of her mouth with a lit <laughs> cigarette hanging out, dead sleep. And I'm like, dude, if justice yeah. isn't served. Yeah. Um, and then there's days I have to drive down there and like put her in the shower, mm. you know? Yeah. Be careful what you ask for. Yeah. But she called me nine months into my process of sobriety. And at the end of my addiction, my life, my relationship with her looked like this. She had served me with a restraining order. She had sold three homes to pay for me to go to two different treatment centers. She bought me a plot. She had taken the life insurance policy out on me and she literally was praying to God to either cure me, kill me or kill her because she couldn't take it anymore. That's what the end of my addiction and relationship with her looked like. To then 90 days into my process of sobriety, after I got out of that treatment, she called me and she said, I hate when you come to visit me. 
And I said, why? And she said, because I get so sad when you leave. You know, and that's literally, she called me on the way here. She, she has more of a social life than I do. I know I'm here in Maui with you, but this is really off from my normal schedule. I'm usually in Wilmington, Delaware, my treatment center, but she's on a cruise in Canada, you know, that's like awesome. just with a whole bunch of other old people, yeah. <laughs> like doing what old people do. Doing what they do. <laughs> so yeah, um, it's, it's amazing. So my mother and Bucky, and, yeah. yeah. But I could, I there's a, so many people that it's almost unfair for me to just say those yeah. two. Yeah. What about a quote? Is there any quotes that you... uh that you live your life by? The very first one that opened up my eyes to to what my potential reality could maybe look like was I was sitting in that treatment center with my therapist and she came in one day and she just said matter of factly, if you change your perception, you can change your world. And I had maybe heard that a million times, but this day I listened to it and it was literally like I had just solved world hunger. I'm like, oh my God, there's so much value to that simple wordplay yeah. and it landed, mm. you know? So she came to my one year anniversary and, and I could, I knew like B-roll, I could take you a picture and text it to you or something, but she bought me this pocket watch and on the back of it, she had inscribed, change right. your perception, you could change your world. I love it. And today I still see her privately because they told me in treatment, if I stick to the basics, I never have to go back to the basics, mm. right? So I really took heed to these suggestions that they were given to me that, created an outcome unlike anything I could, this feeble mind could ever produce. That's amazing. All right, this next segment, past, present, future. One question about the past, one about the present, one about the future. Here we go. Past is advice to your younger self. I know that's a big one. It is. One. I was like preparing for Jeopardy and just yeah, yeah. spat out an answer. I'm like, <laughs> she just stopped me in my tracks. God damn you. Um, what would I tell my younger self? That it's okay to not feel okay. Mm. Right, because what I didn't know then that I know now is I was making these permanent decisions based off of temporary emotions, mm. right? I was literally making these permanent decisions to embark on a, a life of drinking and drugging off of a temporary emotion because I didn't like what my father said to me or I didn't like how my mother reacted to what my father did or vice versa. What about something you've done in your life in the past 12 months that's just improved your life, given you a better life over the last year? In the last 12 months? Yeah. Besides coming to Maui and hanging out. Yeah, right? <laughs> Meeting you, sitting here. Um, in 12 months, wow, what have I- If you want to explain well, the 12, I, you can- I, I will, In 12 months, what I've done is I've opened up my treatment center, Redemption okay. Addiction Treatment Center. Cool. I, you know, the irony in that, God, you know, you want to tell God your plans. How do you make God laugh? Tell yeah, him your day, your yeah. plans. God granted me my license through the state of Delaware on 420. Really? <laughs> Swear to God. <laughs> like not even it. a joke. Like that's the day that I got the phone call. I was in California doing yeah. something else. And they're like, you got the license, yeah. which is not an easy thing to do. Because yeah. now I have like a, I own a rehab and I have like a clinical director and I have a medical director and yeah. I have like, and I deal with insurance. I don't deal with yeah. But insurance, come, you know, like, yeah. and they, they're like, okay, we're going to give you your license on National Weed Day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, but Congrats, uh, uh, that's that was on 420, I received the license. Very cool. And then what do you want your legacy to be? Meaning when people talk about you after you die someday, what do you want them to say? I really hope that people believe in their heart of hearts that I genuinely cared. I cared. I care. I really do. I care about humanity. I care about the outcome of people's decisions that will create their future. Like I care. I care too much. Mm -hmm. 
I'm an empath. I take on people's energy. And that's why I spend a lot of time with my cats. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I, I care and I, I'm practicing compartmentalizing because I care too much, but I don't think that's a bad thing. Mm. You know, yeah. what's the, the saying? I, I wish I, I knew it uh, as heavy as the, uh, the crown as heavy yeah, as the- Yeah, heavy lies the- yeah, I know. You know what I mean? It would have been perfect to add right there yeah, if we could yeah. cut that right there. <laughs> right I would have sounded like a real Socrates. Yeah. God damn it. That was my one shot yeah. to look oh. intelligent. Yeah. But yeah, no, I genuinely care uh, about the greater good of humanity. Yeah. And I pray for people I don't like. I pray for things I don't agree about. And I genuinely want everybody to have the best life that they're intended to, to live. I really want that. Amen. Hey, I don't, I don't ever ask anybody else this question, but I'll ask you, is there a favorite or meaningful, most meaningful tattoo on your arms and one that you regret? <laughs> you know, we'll have to bleep out the ones, <laughs> like for real. Um, my favorite ones are my worst ones. Really? Because there's like these really funny stories that go along mm. with it. <laughs> and they're all like ones that you'll censor out. <laughs> like for real. <laughs> but no, the, the newest one, one of the newest ones is, um, see this little weird one here? Yeah, on, on your neck, yeah. That's a, a giraffe. My mm, mother yeah. loves giraffes. So I filmed this segment with her. I took her to Florida. And I, one day I called her. I'm like, draw me a giraffe. I FaceTime. I'm like, draw me a giraffe. She draws that. Yeah. And I'm like, we're going to get this tattooed one day. She just said yes to get me off the phone. Yeah, yeah. She doesn't remember <laughs> that I don't forget these days. Because I used to forget everything. I'm like, oh, yeah, whatever. Cut to like four months later, I take her to Boca. I had a, we were down there. And, and I, I blindfold her. And I have a camera crew and, and we just walk into a tattoo shop. I unblindfold her and she's like, so we get, long story short, we get these matching tattoos. So <laughs> hers is here. And then the one that she got is like right there. Oh. So that's a really, really cool. So, you know, that God forbid when that day comes that my mother moves on because yeah. it's inevitable, she'll just be in my ear screaming. There it is right there. Like legit. <laughs> so that's a very important one to me. I love it. Yeah. I love it. You know, oh. my first tattoo, ironically, is right here and it wasn't even my my design strung out on heroin bam brings me to his house in westchester and i just keep relapsing he's like dude just trying everything he can to get me to stop so one day he's like i had no tattoos this time he's like we're gonna go to the tattoo shop and you're gonna get no more heroin right here and then next time you're doing heroin you're gonna look down and this mm. is gonna make you not do heroin <laughs> i'm like great idea that's my very first tattoo right here it just says no more fucking <laughs> Wait, wait, can we see it? You can, totally. <laughs> oh, yeah, there oh, it is. Wow, yeah. It's kind of like went away in time. Like no, it's starting I... to blend together. But Dude, there it is. Yeah, <laughs> that right funny. there tells you what my future was going to look yeah. like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I like the attempt there. All right, man, what are you excited about? This is the wrap up. So what are you excited about in the future? What's coming? You got a new book, I know. Yeah, yeah. So... Uh, my books are really cool. I'm most excited right now about my newest endeavor, Redemption yeah. Addiction Treatment Center. Um, because I love, like I used to be of this notion, help everybody, provide everyone scholarships. You gotta help, you gotta help. You don't say no, how dare you say no? And life has a way of right-sizing you, mm. right? Because then I, I buy this building, I staff the facility, which means I now have to make payroll. Yeah. I have to keep the lights on, pay the mortgage. And I can't do that by scholarshipping everybody. Yeah. So I learned, okay, I need some like clients that actually have insurance that can continue to pay to keep the lights on to provide all this free service I want to get to everybody. So I'm, I'm really just learning like things that I never thought I'd be up against. Yeah. And I'm learning about like insurance companies and reimbursements yeah. and um, 
just weird, different things, they excite me. Yeah. Because I never expected or predicted to be here dealing with things like this. Yeah. But I'm excited about you took the raddest thing because that's all whatever. What I'm excited about is life. Yeah. And it had been so long since I was excited to wake up. Mm. Right? Like legit, I go to bed excited to wake up. And if you have a life like that, I believe you're as successful as you'll ever get. Yeah. Beautiful. It, and the the book, Streets of Baltimore. Streets of Baltimore and Dream Seller. Um, yours truly narrated them. Uh, and you so loved you every get, second of it. Yeah, <laughs> did, did. I did. It was tough, man. Uh, but you can get them on all major platforms for audiobooks. Awesome. Um, but yeah, just, uh, you know, and if anyone out there wants to donate money to the Scholarship Foundation to provide free beds for people that get out of treatment that don't have the resources otherwise, there's a Venmo. It's called at Novak's House. Okay. Um, Novak's House. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah. Uh, all right, man. But Last. nonetheless, man, oh, and if, if anyone needs help, if anyone yeah. needs help out there, if anyone's struggling and needs help, they can reach me directly at 610-314-6747. Oh, I love that. So oh, I love it, man. It Thank all, you. man, it just, just, if you just listen, that's cool enough with me too. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Where do people, uh, I guess you get a phone number. Are you are you active on social media? Yeah. yeah. Um, Brandon double underscore Novak is my Instagram. But if you go to my website, brandonnovak.com, that takes you down all the other rabbit holes. All right, man. Appreciate you. You're rock. Thank star. you, thank man. You. Thanks thank for uh, allowing me this, this time to share with you my thoughts. Mm, thank you. Appreciate this. And that is the show. Thank you everyone for tuning in to another episode of A Better Life with Brandon Turner. I hope you enjoyed the insights and the wisdom uh, brought to you today on the show. If you found value in this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and a review on your favorite podcast platform. Uh, your feedback actually does help us improve the show. We look at the feedback, I look at the feedback, and we can reach more people with our message of living a better life. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow me on social, Beardy Brandon. And hey, before I go, this show is all about the habits, actions, and beliefs that can give you a better life. But in case you're interested and you want to know my opinion on what it takes to live the best life ever, and that includes some of my kind of weird spiritual beliefs maybe, check out abetterlife.com slash bestlife. Abetterlife.com slash bestlife. Thank you again for listening, and I will see you next time on A Better Life with Brandon Turner.